Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. God, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us and not left us alone in our sin, but you've chosen to uh, give us your word. And I just pray now that you would speak to us through it, that you would open our hearts. And um, as David prayed, cause us to behold uh, wonderful things in it. So we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As a kid, um, my my mother is not here to defend herself today. Um, But as a child... I, uh, I, I loved that my mother exercised her authority to purchase food for me, to prepare it uh, so that I could eat well. I liked that authority. It worked out well for me. However, I despised the exercise of her authority when she provided me no options for what to eat and forced me to eat the food she prepared, namely peas, which are little balls of death. I won't go into it. I hate them with all of my heart. Um, I remember one night uh, falling asleep at the dinner table, having refused to eat my peas. My mother would not let me move from the table until I ate them, and I literally slept at the table. She won. Um, I thought, even if not in these exact words at that age, what gives you the right to force me to sit here at this table and eat this food? This is how we feel about authority, right? When it benefits us, we love it. When it demands something of us, particularly something of us that we don't particularly find pleasurable, We find it intolerable, and we ask ourselves, what gives you the right? And the answer in that moment is God gave her that right. She was using it wisely, teaching me to respect her and honoring her demands, learning how to engage with and respond appropriately to authority. Every child needs to have those moments consistently in their life. Not only as a kid, but even as adults, we struggle with this. And this is at the heart of what we find in Mark chapter 11 today. We have, grown, we have grown men in this text. We have grown men, like the top of the echelon religious elite grown men, standing before God himself, asking God to his face, what gives you the right? That's what happens in this text. Or, to put it the way it's literally written in here, by what authority do you do these things? No different than what gives you the right. And in this text, they reject, they despise, and they run from God's authority. They would rather sit and sleep at the table than obey. Mark wants us to see our struggle, that our struggle to submit to and honor the authority of Jesus is at the very center of Jesus' mission. It's at the very center of what he is doing in establishing his kingdom in the world. And through this Through this, we see that the authority of Jesus calls us all to submit to him as the rightful king over every molecule. That's what what we see. That is why Mark shows us these scenes here. He wants us to see that Jesus truly has the right and the authority 
to rule over all things. And he's going to show us that in three different ways. Uh, one, we're going to see uh, the repression or repressing God's authority in 11.27 to 33. We'll see rejecting God's authority in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12, and then responding to God's authority in 12.12. 12. Uh, these are separated in your Bible as two separate occasions, and we got a chapter break there, which is really weird. Um, there, it's one story. It's one event. And so we should, we'll be look, taking it as, as one event. So uh, first, repressing God's authority then in verses 27 to 33. Now, as we, we, we come into these verses, we, we need to orient ourselves with what happened last week because this is all very contextual. And as we saw, we had the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, this wonderful celebration of Jesus on Paul's, Palm Sunday. He arrives in Jerusalem. He arrives to his home city the city where God dwells on earth, to his temple, his house. He's finally arrived, and he sees that the religious elite that are supposed to be serving and leading God's people had turned God's house, God's house, Jesus' house, into a den of robbers. Rather than respecting the authority of God, they're now profiting off the backs of people so priests could put some extra coin in their pocket. That's what, that's what Jesus sees, and he's ticked off about it. He's not happy. Jesus expresses anger, disgust over this corruption. He turns over tables, driving people out, yelling. And God's heart here in, that, in those verses that come before this is that His temple was supposed to be a place where people were, were the poor and the rich, uh, where people from all nations would be able to come in and meet Him, to know Him and to worship Him. But now, with what, what's happening in the temple, as we saw last week, the nations are pushed out. And in their place are salesmen and their wares. And they've been, the people have been pushed out. So rather than prayer and communion with God in the temple, now it's a celebration of greed and corruption and profits for these religious elites. And Jesus lets them have it for that. Now, what Jesus did was very public, right? He, drive, he, he, he interrupts the whole Passover celebration. We've got the entire nation of Israel coming out to do this perform these sacrifices and worship in the temple. And Jesus comes in and he just literally shuts the whole thing down. It's a very public display of anger and authority over this corruption. And if you look at verse 18, uh, Mark is clear to point this out to us. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they heard the fiasco that Jesus was doing and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Why? Because all the crowd, all the crowd saw it. They were astonished at this. Everybody saw. This is a very public and a very, it, it, this would have gone viral on YouTube or whatever social media. This, this would have, everyone would have seen this. And you, we need to consider what's at stake here. What's at stake for these religious leaders? What's at stake is riches, wealth, right? Influence, power. The chief priests and the scribes, their scam had been exposed as a fraud. So, naturally, they do what any gangster or whatever would do is they say, oh, we've got to eliminate the competition. Saw the Godfather, they probably think about go cutting the head up off of a horse and put it in his bed at night, right? That's the kind of thing that they're, I mean, literally, that's the kind of mentality that these people have. They are scheming to covertly kill him. And this scene exposes the intentional ignorance of these 
intentional ignorance of these religious leaders. It exposes them as repressing the truth of who God is and what God wants in exchange for a very obvious lie. That is what's happening here. And it's something I, we all know about, but I really know about. This, this, this doesn't live in just the scribes. It lives in all of us. When I was a kid, according to my parents, this is. right. I would write on walls and whatever, with whatever utensil I could find, usually a black Sharpie, and I would put my name on a wall. I would let everyone know that I was there. I was tagging at a very young age. They would find my handiwork and say, who did this? And my immediate response was, Bubba did it. That's my brother. Bubba did it. They'd say, he's not here. Who did it? And then I would say the same things we'll see these elites doing and the same thing that I maintain today. I don't know. Right? I don't know who did it. Well, Luke, it's your handwriting and it's your name. I don't know. It's an intentional repression of truth. An intentional obfuscation of truth to conceal fault. And that, that's, that's what's going on here. That's, that's very clearly what's going on. In verses 27 and 28, the day after Jesus clears the temple, He goes back into Jerusalem, and these leaders, they corner Him. And we're told there it's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the three groups that made up the, the sort of ruling class, the, the highest court of authority in Israel. They called, called them the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and these people, they have a meeting. They're going to go and try to, and, and they have a meeting and they're like, oh, how are we going to bring this guy down? He's threatening, he's threatening our ability to, to maintain our scheme, to, to, to keep hold of our cash. What are we going to do with him? And so they scheme to try to find a way to get rid of him. And they think, okay, well, maybe we'll give him a rope to hang himself from, right? We'll give him an opportunity to discredit himself. They want to trap him. And so then they ask him there, they ask him in these verses, what gave you the right to do what you did yesterday? This is, this, is an attempt, this is an attempt to trap him. They want to get him to say something that will show that he doesn't really have the authority to do this or to make it out like he's a heretic and claiming God's authority for himself. What gives you the right to do this? What gave you the right to come in and make this disruption to interrupt the worship of God? What gives you the right to do that? By what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are? And in response to this, Jesus, he's not dumb. He's not an idiot. He knows what's going on here. He knows how to deal with these kinds of people. And he turns, he turns the tables on them. He turns the tables on them and puts them under questioning. He's the king. He's not going to be questioned by them. He's going to put them under question. And he answers their question with a question. The thing we all hate politicians doing. But here the king, the truly authoritative king, steps forward and answers their question with a question. And because they're full of themselves, because they think they can actually contend with him, they actually engage him. They think, they, they think, they think they're going to be able to have something to say to him that they can handle being questioned by God. And this proves to be the very wrong move. This is like the wrong, the wrong move. And so in verse 29 and 30, he asks them, this is the question, whether John the Baptist's prophetic ministry and his practice of baptism, was it of God? Was it of God? It sounds like Jesus is skirting the issue, right? He's not talking about his authority. He's talking about John's authority. So what is Jesus doing here? 
he is certainly not skirting the issue. It's actually a brilliant move, and uh, the, the, the hubris of these leaders um, leads them to fall into his trap rather than him falling into theirs, which is what happens here. So in verse 31, rather than trying to answer honestly, uh, they're trying to answer in a way that would appease the crowd that was witnessing this. Because not only was yesterday's temple clearing event public, now this meeting, this confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders, it is also a public event. And now the Sanhedrin being questioned by Jesus, they gotta, they, they're going to have to stand up to him. They, they are going to have to show themselves competent. And so they fear looking stupid in front of a crowd. They don't care about what the truth is. What they care about is destroying Jesus and maintaining, maintaining their wealth and maintaining the, um, the approval of the crowd that is around them that's willing to submit to their temple taxes and all of the things that they're demanding of them. They cared about their money-making scheme and eliminating opposition. And so then they, we get, Mark gives us a little bit of an insight here as to, like they're scheming and trying to plot out what's the right thing that's going to get us exactly, how are we going to massage the answer to get what we want out of this situation? They, don't, they aren't saying, well, this is what the truth is. They're trying to figure out how do we manipulate the situation to get what we want out of it. So look at verse 31 again. They reasoned through, saying John was a legitimate prophet of God, would implicate them as cowards who didn't stand up and fight for John when he was imprisoned and beheaded by the king and his, and his wife, right? As John the Baptist sat in prison, they, these religious elite, allowed the prophet of God to build up their greedy wealth and profited off the corrupt system as this prophet was being martyred. Like, they were perfectly fine with that. So if they said he was of God, they would, they would look, they would look very, well, they would look negligent. Also saying he was legit because of John's approval and baptism of Jesus in, in the desert would implicate Jesus as having divine authority. So if, if the prophet of God says, hey, this, is, this man has the authority of God, then they would be legitimizing Jesus' ministry. So Jesus tries to trap them into legitimizing his ministry. And if they were answering honestly, that's exactly what they would have done, right? Giving him legitimate credentials to do exactly what he did. But in verse 2, they realize that if they denied that John was from God, it would not be an option for them. Because the crowd listening to this confrontation believed that John was from God. And so if you want to please the crowd, now you, you have to acknowledge that John was from God, or you're going to be on the outs with the people. And these leaders, who cared more about preserving their corruption than truth, didn't want to say something to compromise their, corruption, their corrupt practices and their influence and power. So they balk. They did what every slimy, corrupt, money-grubbing, exploiting politician does. They play dumb. You all see the hearings on Capitol Hill, whether you're Democrat or Republican. What is, what is the pat answer to any hard question? I don't know. I don't know. Same, same thing I did when writing my name on the wall. Like me with a black sharpie in hand, they don't know. It's the language of the guilty. The claim of ignorance. It's a calculated, desperate attempt to avoid responsibility and a sad display of cowardice. So Jesus here does the only wise thing to be done. In verse 33, he says, well, 
If you don't know, then neither do I know where I get my, my authority from. Two can play this game. The corrupt leaders are not alone, as we have already noted in this intentional repression of truth, of God's authority. It's how Paul describes all of us in the face of God's authority. If, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn a few pages over to Romans chapter 1. Paul outlines this very clearly in Romans chapter 1 for us. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God reveals Himself. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. We know God is there, but we suppress the truth. For what can, in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise and became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the image of resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gives them up the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, and here's the key phrase, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that's, exa that's exactly what we do. This is, Paul is describing not just the religious elite in Jerusalem. This is, we, we see in the religious elite in Jerusalem a, a, maybe a more potent, a very potent expression of this, but this is actually all of our hearts. We will do anything, literally anything, to repress the truth and avoid coming to the term, terms with the reality of who God is and His authority, with His right to rule and reign. We all repress God's authority, exchanging the truth for a lie, preferring inferior gods over the true God. We, we all do this. And it's not, you, it's not just with Sharpies and our names on the wall. It's, it's even the things that we think and feel and desire in our own hearts. We find a way to ignorantly justify them, repressing the truth of God's authority. And yet, God's authority here is displayed. And we need to ask ourselves, how is God's authority displayed and manifested in the face of this defiant repression of who He is? In this text, it erupts, or out of the story of Jesus, it erupts into the world to actually undo the rebellion that is not only in the hearts of the people of Israel, but in our own heart. To undo that rebellion against His rightful rule as King over every molecule. And He does this. He establishes His authority through by sending Jesus to die on the cross. That, that's, that is the manifestation of God's authority to reorder the hearts of humankind that we would no longer repress His authority, exchanging the truth for a lie, but instead receive it with joy. Not, and in His shed blood, not, it not only redeems us and forgives us of those sins, but it transforms us into the kind of people who would repent of that and embrace His authority. He establishes His authority in the face of our obstinance. Which means there's hope for us. 
that little kid that said, I don't know, has hope because God is pleased not just to manifest his authority to tell people what to do, but to transform people like you and me into people who can do what he calls us to do because his blood was not just sufficient to forgive us of our sin, but to transform us into the people who love and obey him. They used their authority as the religious elite ruling over God's people to exploit and hurt God's people. That was, and this is why with authority we struggle with it because we see so much misuse of authority. But what we see happening in the scriptures and through the gospel is that God uses his authority not just to say, I have the right, I have the might, so get with the program. Instead, he transforms the molecules of our heart to become the people he calls us to be rather than just exercising that authority to harm us. And the question this morning is, do you repress the authority of God over your life? Jesus calls us to himself saying, come to me, my authority is for your good and I will transform you into the person I call you to be. So, that is repressing God's authority. Rejecting God's authority we find in 1-11. through 11. It, it, uh, This scene actually picks up momentum. It, it, it intensifies um, in these following verses because Jesus isn't done with these guys yet. He's not going to be okay with this. And so, in verses 1-11, through 11, we find Jesus responding with a parable. Now, I'm reminded as I read this passage of a movie I was very glad I got to see in the theater with Liam Neeson, Taken. You guys have seen this? Most of you have, if you haven't. Short synopsis. Dude appears to be a normal dad, but is really a black ops government operative whose daughter is kidnapped in Paris. He's on the phone in an ominous scene making threats that he's going to use all of his power and his skill to redeem and, re- and, uh, and uh, to rescue his daughter from these horrible kidnappers. And it's, a, you know, it's just a movie, but man, watching it on the screen, I mean, never forget the, the, uh, the infamous scene where he's on the phone talking with them and that famous speech is uttered, raises kind of the hair on the back of your neck, just the way he talks about it, the room is dark, there's a little light shining across his face, and it's low tones in his voice. It's something about when somebody is yelling by whispering, it's so scary. But anyway, that's kind of what he says. He says, and I'm going to read it just because it's fun. It's, a good, it's, it's so good. It says, I don't, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. It's like, it's, it's like so intense, right? Well, that movie scene is threatening, right? It, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And, it, and I do believe that if we read Uh, Chapter 12, verses 1 down to 12, rightly, we experience the same thing. If you understand what's happening here, it will make the hair on the back 
of your next stand up. Jesus is not so on the nose about his threat as is Liam Neeson in that scene, but this is, to be clear, a threat of divine judgment, and it is aimed squarely at these religious elite who are, repre- who are repressing God's authority in Christ and, and exploiting God's people. In verse 12:1, you see the first instance that God is bringing judgment on them. He immediately turns to a parable. If you know anything about the book of Mark, or you paid attention when we were reading in Isaiah, God uses parables in order to judge people. They're an expression of judgment. It's not, it's, it, it's, an in, it's intended by God for His people to be an invitation into communion with Him so they can talk and work it out. And this is what He does with the disciples. He goes and explains it after them. But for people that don't go to Him, for people that are opposed to Him, they are, they are a judgment intentionally intentionally leaving them in a place of confusion where they don't really understand what's going on. And so Jesus says, you want to play dumb? I'm going to treat you like you're dumb. And now I'm going to give you a parable just to show you the kind of judgment that's coming your way, which is off the bat, super intense right away, right? Um, He tells them a story, which is what a parable is. He basically summarizes the history of the Old Testament in this parable, a, a history of their corruption, their present corruption, and the progressing intensity of their corruption to its climax and murder, justifying the authority of God being established in their destruction. That's that's what's going on in these verses. To get what's happening in this parable, uh, one scholar notes, and I think this is helpful, he says, this would be familiar, this, this kind of scene that we see in chapter 12, this kind of thing would be familiar in first century Palestine, where much of the land was not held in large estates, but rather farmed as previously owner uh, farmed as previously by owner occupiers. So people owned the land, they farmed it, but now people are coming in and scooping up the land, and um, and they're moving away. So they're like, uh, what do you call it? Absentee owners are going on in here. This development had escalated during the Herodian period, so when the Herods ruled over Israel, leading to a great increase in landless Jewish peasantry. So the poorer Jewish people couldn't buy land, and therefore to widespread popular resentment and unrest against the more financially elite in the country. Poor people just couldn't buy their own property, so they were in a position where they had to lease property because all of these more wealthy, exploitative leaders like the scribes who were using their wealth to scoop up land and exploit the people, they're living under this. It's not unlike what we have here in Iowa. I mean, if you talk to people outside of the city, this is, this is something that farmers are experiencing in, in Iowa. Massive farming corporations scooping up what were small family farms and made into some massive corporate farm. And now they're owned by people that don't even live anywhere near, nearby. Right? They don't live by... And so now farmers are doing a lot of renting while, and as poorer rural people in, subject to the more wealthy corporations. And just as middle class folks in Iowa are frustrated and saddened by this and are exploited by it, so also in a much more intense way were the people in the crowd listening to Jesus say all this to the Sanhedrin. He was giving a parable that he knew would spark up the ire and increase the intensity in the crowd looking at the Sanhedrin. And by the way, Jesus frames this parable as striking. Uh, he, he says 
rather than pointing to these rich scribes and Pharisees who made their wealth off the backs of these people who've gone out and bought property, he doesn't talk to them as if they're the landowners in this. No, they're the renters in this. They're the renters, and they're worthless renters, unscrupulous, horrible renters who are eventually going to need to be destroyed. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we see a landowner plants a vineyard, digs a wine press, sets up the farm, and rents it out and leaves. Right? That's what's going on. We have a, we have a, a landowner doing this. In verses 2 to 8, when the time comes for the landowner to collect his rent, the, refent, re, the renters refuse to pay each time. So the, the Pharisees here are being depicted as people who refuse to pay their bills. So the landowner sends bill collectors. They fail to go home without the money, and so he sends out more. And not only do they refuse to pay the rent, then they eventually beat the people coming to ask for the money or ask for the fruit. The next, next time, they not only don't pay, but in verse 4, beat a dude in the head, shaming him. You see the escalation here. There's an escalation. We're not just paying. Now we're becoming more violent toward those coming for collection. But it goes on in verse 5, they eventually resort to killing and murdering the, the next bill collector, and a parade of others are sent who get beaten and killed due to these renters refusing to pay the bill. In verse 5, I'll read it for you. Listen to the way it is described. He sent another, and to him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6 then comes to a climax. The owner of the property is like, this isn't working out. We need to figure out a different way to do this. And so he thinks in his mind, I'm going to send my son, my only beloved son, to go and collect the rent. I'm going to go, go collect the fruit from these owners. So he sends his own son to collect the bill. Notice here, the owner doesn't send an army in to destroy these renters or the cops in to arrest them. He sends, he gives them another opportunity by sending his own son, making himself incredibly vulnerable in this situation. He's the one with authority, and he is making himself vulnerable before people who have proven themselves to be unscrupulous and murderous. Surely they'll do the right thing, but no. They conspire to kill him in verse 7 in full knowledge of what they're doing with the intent of stealing the land. And in doing that, they murder the son. They continue in this path. Listen, uh, another scholar writing on this situation um, describes kind of the cultural. If you like real estate law, this is a fun pa passage to study. I got way deep into real estate law in the first century. Just saying. Lots of nerd stuff for you to have fun with. But anyway, he says this. Uh, the arrival of the sun uh, allowed the tenant farmers to assume that the owner had died. So when the sun comes to collect, in these when we, kind of what's going on behind the scenes in this text is the, the renters are like, oh, the son's here. Oh, this, the, the father must have died, so he must now have the inheritance, and he's the, that's why he's coming to collect the debt. Under specified circumstances, an inheritance could be regarded as ownerless property which could be lawfully claimed by anyone. This provision of the law explains why the tenants assume that if they murder the son and presumed heir, 
of the property. They may take unhindered possession of the vineyard. It would become ownerless property and they could lay hold of it and they would legitimately own it through this murder, which would make them make their claim as actual occupants of the land legitimate. It's a horrible scheme. It's, vi- it's vile in every possible way. And they kill him, thinking that they're going to that they're going to get away with it, thinking that, oh, we're going to get the land now. But then the owner comes. <laughs> the owner's not dead. He just sent his son as a gesture of grace and mercy. And instead, when they kill him, now it has brought this owner to his to to the extreme of his um, of his unwillingness to persist with this anymore, and he comes to destroy them. That's what's happening here. That's that's what's going on. In verse nine, these greedy renters miscalculated the situation. The owner is alive and coming to destroy them. They're going to die, and as Liam Neeson might have said. He's got a particular set of skills that he's going to use on them. It's ominous. Just as their treachery escalates, so does the authority of the landowner in the establishment of justice. Right? That's what's happening here. Not only will they be destroyed, but listen to this, and this is what's happening in verse 10. Not only are they going to be destroyed, but the one they reject, the one they kill, is now, as it says there, the cornerstone. It's a quote from Psalm 118. So what is that about? It means this. It means that when they kill the son, rather than eliminating him, he is now consuming them. Right? He is now the center. He has been elevated, glorified, put to the most prominent place. Rather than in the grave or at the bottom of a pile of rocks that is a rejected stone, now he's the most important stone. He's the one holding everything Together, the first stone, the move to make him irrelevant has backfired and their murder of him has actually served to make him ruler and center of all things. This makes Liam Neeson look like a chump, right? He's got nothing on this, right? He's got nothing on this. Jesus actually achieves through his death greater authority. Jesus is saying that God is the landowner. He leased out Jerusalem and the temple to the priests, the scribes, and the elders. They refused to do what was required of them. And God sent His bill collectors, His prophets, to them looking for spiritual fruit, just as He did when He went to the fig tree uh, last week. Looking for evidence of what they're doing, that they're doing what they were told to do and what they agreed to do in the covenant with God. And rather than doing what God told them, rather than doing what they agreed to do, they reject the prophets, they beat the prophets, they kill the prophets. Same way they killed the prophet Isaiah, they killed the prophet Jeremiah, they killed Ezekiel, they killed Micah, they killed Amos, they killed John the Baptist, and now they want to kill the son who came to collect the rent. God sends Jesus. And last week we saw Jesus goes in, he inspects the temple. He's looking for payment. He's looking for the fruit that he demanded from them and they agreed to bring. He looks for prayer, for worship in the temple, the fruit 
of prayer that we learned last week. He looks to see them obeying and doing what they agreed to do in God's law, and rather than finding them doing those things, they're now conspiring to kill him. They're doing exactly, they're living out the story, seeking to destroy and take Jesus out. The passage is a clear retelling of Isaiah 5, which is why we read this. We see this in Isaiah 5 um, that we read earlier. Jerusalem, the temple, has become a vineyard that will be devoured, broken down, trampled, wasted, and it will become desolate and deserted waste. As it says there in, uh, in um, Isaiah 5, it will become, there will be a great outcry over the destruction that God is going to bring, which happens in AD 70, which is after that. But here we see the tables turned very sharply on these religious elite. Rather than the religious elite eliminating the opposition, they merely fulfill the conditions of their own ultimate destruction. That's what happens here. They usher in their own demise as they reject Jesus and seek to kill him. And they will continue to reject him, and they eventually do kill him. They have him crucified as a common criminal, and as they do, he will rise from the dead as the chief cornerstone of a new temple upon which the kingdom of God will be established and rule over the earth. As it says in verse 11, rather than mourning at the rejection of Jesus, that which was rejected is now marvelous. They're looking at awe and awe at what has happened through this. Jesus' authority and rule is not deterred by rejection or even death. Instead, they are the occasion upon which he will demonstrate his ultimate manifestation of right, of power, and authority. Telling death to take a seat as he comes, he establishes his authority through death. And does this not sound familiar to everything we've been hearing the last several weeks? That the path to glory comes through a humble walk down a dark path through a grave. This is exactly what Jesus was, sent, was preparing the disciples and preparing us to see. And so in the face of that, the last point I have is that we see their response to this display of authority by Jesus threatening them with this horrible judgment in verse 12. We see that the religious elites respond to Jesus' parable in this verse in these ways. They attempt stopping his authority there in verse 12. Look at it with me. The people were seeking to arrest him, right? They, not the people, the, these leaders. They were seeking to arrest him. They wanted to stop him. They wanted to put an end to his authority. They wanted to arrest him. Second, they relent from arresting because they're full of fear. So they don't actually fulfill what they want because they're afraid. Look at what it says there. For they perceive that he had told the parable against them. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I skipped ahead. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. Right? So they, they, they wanted to stop Jesus, but they feared people. They had the fear of man in them. Look at, you see this throughout the text in verse 18, as we've already read. The people saw it. The people saw Jesus clearing out the temple in verse 18, for they feared him. They were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him. So they, they had the fear there. And then in verse 32 of chapter 11, we see it again. 
uh, let's see here, but we shall say from man, and they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. They, they had the fear there. And then in 12.12, we see it here again. They, the fear of man consumed them and led them in their way. Uh, not only that, they perceived, they saw, they knew they were the renters to be judged. They knew. And, they, and that knowledge didn't lead them to repent, didn't lead them to modify their ways. Instead, they repressed that perception and tried to stop Jesus. And then last, they just flee in fear. The end of the verse. They know they're beat. The response is instructive to us. They do the exact opposite of what God's authority is intended to do in us, right? They flee in fear. They run from Jesus. Now, those are the ways we aren't to respond to the authority of God. The way we would that's most appropriate for us to respond to this demonstration of authority is actually the exact opposite of what we see happening in these religious elites. They can, they, God would have us celebrate his authority rather than attempt to stop it. Right? Rather than attempt to arrest him or to stop his demonstration and establishment of authority, that is something to be celebrated and welcomed. His authority is to be worshipped and to be obeyed and submitted to. Welcoming God's authority is the way of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus wanted from them. This is what he desired from them and what he was willing to bring them into. But they, instead of celebrating it, tried to stop it. So God calls us to celebrate his authority. Um, I don't know how you feel about God's word and its claims and its demands upon your life. But we are called here to celebrate his demands upon us as something that is good and wise as a matter of worship to him. We also, rather than fearing man, a proper response to the authority of God is to fear God, to fear his authority, seek his approval, not the approval of the crowd looking in. Let's camp here for just a moment. The fear of man is uniquely tempting. It's uniquely tempting to us. It's a near universal struggle. Some struggle with it more than others. I know I do. I want people's approval. I want people to think I'm funny and nice and smart. I want people to do that. And so I try to figure out ways to make that happen in my life. That's why I end up telling a lot of very inappropriate jokes and being sarcastic. It's one of the biggest elements of the fear of man in me. I want people to think I'm cool and funny. But God says, rather than pursue the approval of others, we should pursue Him and do the opposite of what these Pharisees did. And we see this uh, so clearly. In, uh, there's a, a story in uh, Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, the king there threatens to burn them alive. And rather than gain the approval of the king and the people that supported the king, they sought the approval of God. They had every reason to fear the king. And yet in 3.16 of Jan Daniel chapter 3, they answered the king's threats like this. They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to, to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 
But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They have, these men were fully given to the fear of God, even at their own demise. And when we're filled with the fear of man and seek the approval of others, it corrupts us. It weakens us with anxiety and it puts us in the crosshairs of God's authoritative judgment. And yet when we fear God, we entrust ourselves to Him and to His authority even if the circumstances become deadly. Right? But there's hope and there's joy and there's strength in fearing God. When we fear God, we might feel the fear of man creep up, but the fear of God is strength to resist it and then to step out in faith even if the consequences are grave. And this is exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what He did for you and for me. He feared God, not the power of these religious elites. And they eventually did arrest Him and have Him crucified. But just as Jesus showed up in the fiery furnace with those three boys there in Daniel, protecting them from the flames of death, Jesus then also rises up from the grave and brought life through social rejection. Right? His authority transcends death. It transcends all worldly power and His kingdom establishes life through rejection so we don't have to sit in fear of it, but can actually rest in His authority to sustain us in the midst of rejection. So seek God's approval. Seek God's approval, not man's. And, and here's the really good news when you seek God's approval. You already have it in Christ. God has approved of you. He has received you. In Christ, Jesus won God's approval. You don't have to seek it out as if you don't already have it. God approves of you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You are accepted by God, and so enjoy that forsaking the approval of others. And then third, we see that um, not only are we to, um, not just to perceive and then resist God's authority, but to perceive and then lead us, and lead us to allow that to lead us to repentance, right? They should have repented. This is why I thought it was helpful to read Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 6, because when we read Isaiah 5, we see this vineyard and these threats of judgment. And then when you come into chapter 6, God shows up. His authority is on display in this unbelievable, beautiful vision of angels with all these wings, weird-looking creatures, crying out, holy, holy, holy. God's authority and His glory fills up the temple with smoke, and there's this glorious scene, and, and as Isaiah is standing there, seeing this, seeing the authority of God with his own eyes, standing before him, rather than resisting that, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in a, among a people of unclean lips. And what God does in that moment is he brings out the, the angel, brings out the coal, and puts it to his lips, signifying God's purification of the man and his from his sin. When we perceive God's authority and we run to Him in repentance, we find cleansing and we find hope. This is why we do a confession of sin on Sunday. We practice this every single Sunday. We come in, we see the glory of God in a prayer of adoration and a song, and then we confess having seen our sin in light of that. And then we hear, lift up your heads and hear the good news because God in a sense, an angel flies to your tongue and cleanses you, or the blood of Jesus covers you. We want to engage in that every week to practice this very thing. 
to go before God and experience his cleansing rather than resist him. And then last then is just simply that, run to Jesus. Rather than flee him, rather than run away as they did, so they left him in verse 12 and went away. Instead of going from him, we are to go to him and find in him an authority that cleanses us, forgives us, and fills us with joy. Jesus has, Jesus has authority over every molecule in this in the cosmos, over every molecule in your body. And it's good news. It means that the God who loves you will use his authority for you. That it cannot be stopped, and it cannot be overruled, not even by death itself. His authority proven in the way in which he sent Jesus to us and the way Jesus establishes authority for us is not against you. God is not a tyrant in heaven. He's not a despotic king looking to exploit you or to harm you, but is actually for you. And so the call of God is to run to him, not run away from him, and to welcome him rather than resist him, and to rest in his authority and submit to it out of joy. Because in that, there is life and joy and peace. And so let's go to God and ask him for his grace to experience and know that joy.